0: Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Lily Jamali. More than four million Californians will be eligible to get the COVID-19 vaccine starting today as the state expands who qualifies. The new group includes people under 65 with underlying health conditions and developmental or other high-risk disabilities. Under the new guidelines, people don't have to provide documentation for their medical conditions, which is a bit of a concern for some health officials who worry about people jumping the line. Here's Dr. Paul Simon, chief science officer with the L.A. County Department of Public Health, speaking at a news conference on Friday.
1: We don't feel that our frontline staff are in a position to screen and make decisions about who or who is not eligible. I think if someone simply attests to the fact that they have a serious condition or disability, they will be approved for vaccination.
0: It's unclear if cities and counties will be able to meet supply demands, as shipment of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will be delayed until later this month. Starting today, migrant detainees held in California by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, will be eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine as well. This comes after advocates pushed state officials to protect this at-risk population. KQED's Farida Javala-Romero reports.
1: People who live or work in congregate settings with a high risk of outbreaks are being prioritized, including ICE detainees. State officials say immigration detention centers must work with local health jurisdictions to get vaccine doses. Jackie Gonzalez, with Immigrant Defense Advocates, says the change is long overdue. And what we would like to see is a plan for how local public health departments should roll out the vaccine. The coronavirus has swept through all detention centers in the state, infecting hundreds. ICE did not immediately respond to a request for comment. For the California report, Anfarida Javala Romero.
0: This week, the California Report is bringing you stories from our collaboration with CalMatter's College Journalism Network. Each piece offers a window into how the pandemic has shaped the lives of college students. Today, a look at the barriers and benefits remote learning has created for students with disabilities. The pandemic has exposed the wide spectrum of learning needs for students with disabilities and learning differences. It's also opened up conversations about the value of keeping learning formative formats flexible for the long term. Emma Hall, a third-year student at Sacramento State, has the story.
1: If you're in a class where there's a quiz, as long as you go to the class, you will always take the quiz. It's not like you'll forget to take the quiz. Like, you sit down, the professor says, remember everyone says a quiz, I'm passing out the, the quiz. This is David Miller Chevalov. He's a third-year at UC Santa Cruz with Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD, and Attention Deficit Disorder. He says online learning has been challenging, since his learning style depends on physically going to class. I've only, at least on two occasions, sat down to do an assignment that was due at a certain time. Like, I'll sit down an hour beforehand, and I'll start looking at email, and then an hour and a half later I'll be like, oh, I just missed a quiz. I'm sure that that's happening to everyone, but it is more difficult for, for folks who have disabilities which accept, affect executive functioning. In 2019, almost 19,000 students in the UC system were receiving disability accommodations. But in many schools, students have to go through a tedious process to secure them. So there could be plenty who don't even try. But Chevalov says UC Santa Cruz is lucky. We don't require documentation to get an appointment with disability services. You can get provisional accommodations as you work on getting paperwork together, as long as you can show to a reasonable degree that you do have a disability. Megan Gibson, an English major at Sacramento State, also has ASD. I know autism and introvert aren't the same thing, but they do often go hand in hand. Because of her introverted tendencies, she says taking class from her bedroom has made her learning experience more comfortable. Not worrying about being watched, I guess. And it's not that always being watched is a bad thing. Like, I feel like I can kind of relax a bit. And I feel like it's given me, like, some peace as an introvert. Mark Machonic is a photography major at Berkeley City College in the Bay Area. So my disability is it's super unpredictable. I can't really know when it's going uh, when it, when, to, when I'm going to have a day where I'm okay and I can do what I need to do, or I'm going to have a day where I need to just like be in bed or sit on the couch and just do everything from there. But when all their classes went online, the unpredictability of Machonic's physical disability wasn't as restricting. In all honesty, like I feel more classes should be available online, like pandemic or not, like it needs to be more accessible. Nicole Redding is the Associate Director of Disability Services at San Francisco State. She confirms that the mixed experiences of Chevalov, Gibson, and Mishanek are representative of her own observations. And she says seeing students' experiences has given schools a new perspective on the potential benefits of more adaptable learning approaches. I think what this
2: has highlighted is that not only is it okay to consider different ways to do things, but that's a good thing because it's, it, it serves a larger number of people to be able to participate um, in different ways. And so my hope would be that that's considered
3: in moving forward.
1: Officials from the UC and Cal State systems say both sets of schools are still figuring out how they might use remote learning long-term in a post-pandemic world. David Chevalov, the UC Santa Cruz student with ASD and ADHD, also co-chairs the UC Disability Ad hoc committee. He says if schools provide more accessible approaches to learning, it could help bridge the other equity gaps students with disabilities have to balance. I'm always profoundly struck by like if it were not for my privilege, if it was not for the fact that I'm part of a family that is able to pay for lots of therapy and lots of like, you know, stuff like that, that I would not be doing well. And more than that, he says, the adjustments schools have made during the pandemic, like recording lectures, are worth continuing because they benefit everyone. For the California Report, I'm Emma Hall in Concord.
0: CalMatters College Journalism Fellow Janelle Salonga co-reported that story. This collaboration was brought to you by the College Futures Foundation. And last week, the Stanford Daily Student newspaper broke the news that a study group and task force to re-envision disability access there will be launched after a prospective student with cerebral palsy was denied a scribe for homework assignments. Starting today, museums, zoos, movie theaters and gyms in Los Angeles will be allowed to reopen indoors with limited capacity. KPCC's Caroline Champlin has more.
1: All the museums I talked to said they'll need time to get ready. Many have to rehire staff, retrain them and check safety protocols. The L.A. County Museum of Art is aiming for the end of the month. LACMA CEO Michael Govan says besides hiring staff, the facility is ready to go. You can't even open a bathroom door here. It's all touchless. So not only is the art space touchless, you can't touch art, of course, but now you can't even touch the bathroom doors. Greg Lemley, president of Lemley Theaters, says it'll take at least a month to open. But he's confident that people are eager to come back after a year of streaming.
2: Part of that experience was recognizing how much better it is to see a movie in a movie theater and how much they miss it and, you know, how much they're really going to treasure, you know, that opportunity once they can do it again.
1: The short-term question, Lemley says, is figuring out if it's cost-effective to open with just 25 percent capacity. For the California Report, I'm Caroline Champlin in Los Angeles.
0: Those reopenings are happening as L.A. County is one of 13 across the state that's moved to the less restrictive red tier. In neighboring Orange County, which is also moved to the red tier, some movie theaters and restaurants got a head start welcoming guests over the weekend. More than a dozen other counties, including Sacramento and San Diego, are expected to get official word tomorrow that they're moving to the red tier, which would leave only a handful of counties in the most restrictive purple tier. In the Central Valley, the Kern County Latino COVID-19 Task Force has launched a new hotline to help older, non-English speakers schedule COVID-19 vaccine appointments. As Valley Public Radio's Mari Balaños reports, Project Abuelita has already received over 800
2: calls. Project Abuelita is an extension of the task force's mental health hotline that was created to help people cope with the pandemic. It's a place to have
1: callers call that may not have internet or may not
2: have a computer. That's hotline manager Bianca Torres. She's received a lot of calls from farm workers, people in the education sectors, and people who are 65 years and older. Some just don't know how the process works. You know, some of them are on the verge of crying when they call because they say that they have no family members. They say, like, you know, all their family members have passed. They don't have any young young people to help them with the website. And if they need help getting to their appointment, Torres says she directs them to some of the local transportation services, like Dial-A-Ride, that provides free transportation for vaccine appointments in Delano. For The California Report, I'm Maddie Bolaños. Support for this
3: podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to Osh's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at Osh.com. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul?
0: In October, bankrupt opioid giant Purdue Pharma settled with the U.S. Department of Justice over its role in helping start our nation's opioid crisis. Well, later today, Purdue Pharma puts out its plan to reorganize the company. Earlier, I spoke with the author of the new book, Bad Medicine, Charlotte Bismuth, who's followed the case. I began by asking her what Purdue Pharma might look like after bankruptcy.
2: One of the options, of course, was liquidation. Another option was a sale to another private owner. And in fact, what the Purdue Pharma, the Sacklers, and the DOJ have endorsed is turning the company into a so-called public benefit company that would be owned by the very people whom it harmed, the creditors, including the states, cities, tribal governments, and individuals. And they would continue to sell OxyContin to fund a trust.
0: And I want to be clear, you said DOJ, thats the U.S. Department of Justice is endorsing that approach uh, that you just laid out. I think what's so striking is this idea that in order to help treat and compensate past victims of opioids that were peddled by this company, by Purdue Pharma, um, we need to. <laughs> the idea is that we will sell more opioids from this new company to help pay for that.
2: It's a puzzling proposal. It's one that raises so many questions. Who would operate the company? Uh, we have understood from some of the judges' musings during hearings that there would be a board, an independent board to operate and oversee the company, that the um, maximization of profits would explicitly not be one of the company's goals, that it would be oriented toward the public interest. But, you know, pharmaceutical historians and attorneys um, for victims of the opioid epidemic have raised some very good points, which is this has never worked before. We're not sure that the company is economically viable. There's a huge conflict of interest for the states regulating the sale of OxyContin and you're putting the people who were harmed in charge of selling the product that harmed them.
0: Yeah, we can't underscore that point enough. And it's similar to the pg and bankruptcy that just ended here in Northern California in that in both bankruptcies, in Purdue Pharma and PG&E, you have victims of those companies being left beholden to the future profitability of that company that hurt them for compensation. I I do want to talk to you about your new book, Bad Medicine, about Stan Lee, a doctor in New York whose business model, really, was selling opioid prescriptions. Um, Can you talk about your role as a prosecutor putting Dr. Lee on trial and then going
2: on to write about it? Absolutely. Well, the Dr. Lee case is really from the front lines of the opioid epidemic. And the themes of the case and the book which are greed, pain, justice, are those that we're still struggling with today, not just in the Purdue bankruptcy, but also in the cases of several other physicians who recently have been uh, charged and are being prosecuted for the overdose deaths of their patients. Now, um, Dr. Lee was the first physician in New York State to be charged with homicide for the overdose death of his patients. We actually uncovered 16 overdose deaths associated with his practice. The grand jury charged him with homicide on two of those. As you mentioned, he sold prescriptions. He did it in exchange for cash. Uh, He operated a pain clinic one day a week on the weekend, and he saw anywhere from 70 to 100 and sometimes more patients per day.
0: You know, it's easy to talk a lot about policy and, you know, legal elements of this case, but you really bring out the humanity, the people who were affected by Dr. Lee's behavior. And I just wonder, you know, can you talk a little bit about that side of this story, uh, the people affected and um, how they feel as they watch all of this play out years later?
2: There is so much there to talk about. I think working on this case made me Learn things that I hadn't understood about substance use disorder, withdrawal, pain, um, but also greed. And specifically with respect to substance use disorder and withdrawal, you know, the amount of pain that's involved in that and the stigma that those conditions carry is really something that I think most of us are blessed not to understand, but should learn about in order to really see the full extent of the tragedy of the opioid epidemic. It's not just a matter of statistics of how many people died, because we can become really numb to that. But with each of those deaths, there's an entire family and social network that suffers. There is a, uh, a track record of a couple of years, probably, of really excruciating uh, suffering on the part of that human being and there are gaps in our uh, social system that allowed that person to fall through Uh, and those are concerns that i really try to talk about in the book you know being very straightforward about how much i didn't know how much i learned what it meant for people who are very much stigmatized in society to be the ones coming forward in a case to be the victims to be sitting in front of a jury and talking about their experience and having a jury validate that, you know, um, acknowledge their credibility, acknowledge what they went through, and acknowledge that the actions of a very well-educated, very privileged physician broke the law. And I remember as
0: a reporter in New York, um, I think it was in 2009, your former boss, um, special narcotics prosecutor for the city of New York, Bridget Brennan, saying there was a an uptick in, she called it heroin use, um, and it was not happening in the, you know, in the urban centers. It was happening on the outskirts in these suburban areas. I mean, I spent a week on this. You spent years prosecuting this case. What kind of toll did that take on you as a person of spending so much time with this?
2: It took a significant toll. It also led to a lot of growth because I met the families of those who had suffered. I met the people who had struggled uh, being Dr. Lee's patients and who were still living with the aftermath of the addictions. Um, It took a significant toll. Uh, I spoke to my children much more bluntly, much more often about what we were seeing out in the street about what it meant for people to have substance use disorder how that could start with just a party or um, a moment of experimentation with something in a parent's medicine cabinet i kept all my medications under lock and key and you know from a from a work perspective i had always been someone who was very driven individually and who had a sense of you know, perfectionism. And this case really taught me that we cannot do anything alone. We need to come together as a team. And I think in that respect as as well, it's sort of a microcosm of the opioid epidemic and how we can resist, you know, future deaths, which is that people from all walks of life and all areas of expertise have to come together. Public health, people in recovery, families of the lost ones, medical experts. We need everyone to speak about what they're seeing and to come together and see what we can do better. All right. Charlotte Bismuth, author of
0: Bad Medicine. She's also been following the unfolding bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: That was Charlotte Bismuth. She's the author of the new book, Bad Medicine, Catching New York's Deadliest Pill Pusher. And that is the California Report for this Monday, March 15th. We are a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening.
3: Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Personal Capital. Helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor personalcapital.com, and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years?